LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and today I'm here with Daniel M. Hello, hello. And we also have a, a very special guest, and I'm almost scared to pronounce her name. <laughs> I don't know about it. It's Rosaria, is that correct? You're correct, but I would have been more than happy to correct you in public if, if you weren't, All so right. no fear. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, and I have connected with her at ERLC and their events. I think you've probably spoken at three now, maybe? Mm, no, but... No? It feels like it. More than once. Surely more than once. No, it's just once, but that's just okay. <laughs> Well, I'm doing a great job of this. Daniel, you should take over. Great intro, Todd. Great intro. (laughs) No, but part of the reason why she's on is because, you know, we get, um, we have people approach us with, you know, their latest, greatest book all the time. And some of those we do. And, um, but this one in particular is something that seems to be coming up again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And her book is The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Uh, and we, at my church, um, I, I was like, oh, I'm doing an interview with her in a couple of weeks. And I see these books laying everywhere. Yeah. And then it's part of a sermon series and it's part of people that are doing, um, that are, that are doing groups together. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is really good. Mm-hmm. I can actually bring this up in the podcast. And, and just to be clear, we are the ones who approach Rosaria for the we interview. We did. Yes. <laughs> yes Even though others true. have tried to approach yes, us. Yeah. Yes. What I'm saying is I heard wow. her speak. This is a great book as well. Um, so we're really, really delighted to have you on the podcast today. Well, I am honored to do anything with you guys. You guys come with a great reputation, and I'm very thankful for the way that you help get the gospel out there. So the pleasure is all mine. Awesome. And just a quick note, my wife visited me at the office a couple of days ago, and she saw the book, and she's like, oh, I wanted to read that. And I was like, you can't have it. I'm reading it right now. <laughs> <laughs> but when I'm done after this interview, I will hand it off to her because it's, it's a great book. So before we get into the questions, Rosario, why don't you give us the, the big picture of this incredibly important um, book that you've written for us? Oh, man. Okay. Well, uh, thank you. Um, may God be given all the glory. Um, okay. So the book is called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And the subtitle is is really important. It's Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in a Post-Christian World. We are living in a post-Christian world. And the really good news is that Jesus is leading from the head of the line. But we are, le- we are living in a world that is different than it was even five years ago, 10 years ago. There are many, many uh, examples of religious liberty um, being uh, threatened, denied um, in various places. But the one place that you are not just entitled, but, but really called to uh, seek out strangers Make by God's grace those strangers into neighbors and watch by God's grace those neighbors become part of the family of God is your home. Mm. And and so it, it really is a, a memoir of how I came to faith. Um, and, and I'm confident there are millions of Christians like me who could never have walked through the doors of a church, but had a Christian neighbor who is willing to bring the church to you, Mm. um, not once, not twice, but you know, a thousand times. 
And so the book really chronicles how and why Kent and I uh, looked at each other about a couple of years ago and said, we need to do this every day. And, and, and we need to open our doors wide. We need to start thinking about hospitality in ways that are open and regular. We're missing the opportunity to put the hand of the stranger into the hand of the savior. And we really do love our neighbors, but you know what? We really don't love them enough. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's so good. And Rosaria, um, man, that, that just reminds me of, I, I love this quote from Leslie Newbegin, where he says, the congregation is the hermeneutic of the gospel. And, yeah. um, you know, yeah. as evangelicals, we always talk about proclaiming the word, preaching the word, sharing the yeah. word, sharing the gospel. But uh, we need to do a better job at actually living it out. <laughs> right. And what better place than in our homes and through hospitality, right? Well, and go ahead. And I know it's a, a key part of your story. So share, you know, share that. Share how you came to Christ and how. Oh, yeah. How I, how I was on the receiving end of absolutely, this. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, and actually that was a big impetus for this because over the years I've, I've shared in other books how I came to Christ. And often people will say to me, you know, the, Ken and Floyd Smith had you in their home, you know, anytime you wanted to be there and at least once a week for years and years and years. And, you know, and often I'll share what that was like from being on the receiving end of a vital, authentic Christian hospitality. And, and, and more often than not, a, a, a solid Christians will just walk away, you know, rich, young ruler style and say, wow, good for them. I just can't do that. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I'm busy. I have important things to do. And I know I, I can appreciate that. I can really appreciate that. But um, years ago, I mean, it really does feel like a, a lifetime ago, um, 20 years ago, I was a gay rights activist in New York and I was in a committed lesbian relationship and I was an atheist and I was very happy. I was about to be tenured uh, and I was eventually tenured and um, life was going well and I wasn't looking for Jesus and I wasn't looking for Christians. Although when I spoke at gay pride marches, I found myself encountering, you know, many, many mm. Christians. Um, and, um, after my tenure book was written, I started writing a book on the religious right because I really wanted to understand why people like you hated people like me. And, I, you know, that was, the, you know, why couldn't Christians leave consenting adults alone? All of those questions, you know, mm. if Jesus is the answer, what's the question? Do you care? Do you care what my questions are? Wow. Um, you know, all of those things. And in the process, I, I, um, uh, I wrote an article, um, uh, that was, a. Um, a critique of the promise keepers, they had come to town and I was on a war against patriarchy. So that was, you know, that was just prime material. And a pastor, a local pastor who was also my neighbor responded to my editorial, not with anger, not with an email, not with a counter editorial, not with an invitation to a debate, but a very lovely um, uh, typed uh, note um, with an invitation to dinner. Mm. 
And, um, and I'll tell you the reason I accepted, I, I was writing a book on the religious right. I don't have the right pedigree for this, but I figured he did. And I sort of looked at Ken Smith as my unpaid research assistant. And <laughs> I was more than happy to go to dinner. That is fantastic. Yeah, I was more than happy to get, you know, dinner and a show out of it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but, but, you know, something else actually happened. And after years and years, um, Ken and Floyd really did become my, my, my dear friends and the gospel started to take root in my heart. And what happened when I came to Christ, I didn't stop feeling like a lesbian, um, not at all. But, but Jesus clearly was who he said he is. And that changed everything. And so I, I wrote about that in, in two previous books, but, but it didn't, yes, it was the word of God. Yes, it was the word of God. Absolutely. But it was the word of God served to me on, you know, sandwiches and soup and daily conversation and friendship. And I actually do not think that Ken Smith would have loved me less uh, if I had never committed my life to Jesus. And, and what I, 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 what I tell people today, what I tell the unbelievers in my life is I, I'm not going to love you more. If you become a Christian, I'm just going to love you longer. Wow. So Ken and Floyd lived the gospel and this was in Syracuse, New York. Mm. And this was during the heyday of the AIDS crisis. I lived in a hospitality home I, I knew what it was like to serve dinner to people who whose numbers I couldn't imagine by the beginning of the day. But there is something different about what was going on in their house, because at the end of a conversation or whenever there is a pause, Ken would just pass out the Bibles and the Psalters and say, well, we need to invite Jesus into this conversation now. Let's start. Hmm. And so it wasn't, it, it wasn't to shut us down. It wasn't to shut me up. It wasn't to rebuke me. This wasn't done for the heathen at the table. It was done because that's what these people did. And over, over years and years of that, I came to understand Jesus is alive and he cares about what's going on and he can make a way even when I can't see one. And that was a powerful comfort to me, even as it was an offense. And I, it was a deep offense. Some of those Psalms, I'm a singer. I love to sing. I couldn't help but to sing with, with these Christians. And yet the words that were coming out of my mouth, quite frankly, disgusted me. And so the war began. Hmm. And Ken and Floyd persevered with me as that war played out in something called saving faith. So at what point did you, you know, a lot of times missiologists like talking about the angle scale and, and there's that idea of, you know, you're this, it's this direction, right? We're, we're, we're looking at faith is more about not a destination, but the direction we're moving in. Uh, but so at what point for you did things change? Did things shift? Well, they shifted when I had to stop looking at this as a research program. And, and I think they really shifted the day that I was, uh, Thursday night was the night that my partner and I had an open house for anyone in the gay community who just wanted to come and talk about a new diagnosis or suicide or, or whatever. Um, 
And at that dinner party, a transgendered friend, um, I, I call her Jay in the book, came into the kitchen and put her hand over mine and, and said, Rosaria, this Bible reading, this research you're doing, it's really changing you. And I'm really scared. And I sat down with her and I said, Jay, what if it's true? Hmm. What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? You see, we were leaders. We were leaders in the gay community. And we were not so hardened in heart that we didn't think about the fact that leaders have followers. And leaders are always responsible, not only to see and think about where you're going, but to look behind you and to see what's going on back there. Yeah. Um, and so Jay sat down and, and tears just welled up in her eyes. And she said, well, I know this. I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years and I prayed that God would change me, but he didn't. And if you want, I will pray for you. And that's the moment that this research program pr project stopped being a research project. Um, because two things happen. One, I have a dear, now suddenly I have a dear friend who has read this Bible and knows it better than I do and went to seminary and who knew this, right? This is not, this is new information. Um, and that gave me a kind of secret tacit permission to really think about this in terms of my life. But the second part of it was that I was really mad at her for this. <laughs> you know, I didn't think I needed healing. I was a gay rights activist. I believed gay is good. But even the Bible that I was reading didn't say I needed healing. It, it said I needed to repent of my sin. And so there was, you know, what we don't realize is conflict is very good. It's, you know, when you are in conflict, you can find the edge of an argument. And when you can find an edge of an argument, it could explode right in front of you. And that's mm -hmm. when things got real. So that's when things got real for me. And that's when the research program died and the life calling was ignited. And I fought it for all I was worth. Oh, wow. I want to, I want you to keep going. <laughs> I don't know about this all five questions. Thing, yeah. Daniel. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's try. Let's derail it. <laughs> I love derailing our yes. podcast. So okay. I'm officially derailing right now. I'm declaring it derailed. Are okay. You cool with that? Yes. You, let's keep going. All right. All right. I want to ask. This is your show. Okay. Um, I want to ask a, a couple things. You know, you, you talk about it being a, um, a post Christian world, our post Christian world and the kindness of hospitality. Right. To what extent is it a post-hospitable world as well? Like, I, I'm right. just curious exactly. about that because I notice, you know, even in um, when I look back on my childhood and think about my family, think mm -hmm. about church the way it was and think about the churches that I've, you know, been connected to, mm -hmm. uh, something did shift. Something has right changed. So can you right. talk to that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I call it a post-Christian world because there are absolute external structural law providing reasons for why we're not any anywhere close to living in a world that's going to protect you as a Christian. I couldn't use the same thing for post-hospitable, but what I could say is this. We live in a social media infatuated madness world where people have bought 
the uh, delusion that counterfeit hospitality is the real thing. Mm. And so they moved from the porch to, you know, to, to Facebook live and they call that community. And uh, I think right there, that's just a dirty, rotten sin. And I think that if you're listening to this and that's you, this is a really good time to just face plant and repent because hospitality means getting close enough to people to get hurt, but, but praying that you're close enough to people so that you can put their hand into the hand of Jesus. Wow. You're going to lose skin in any real Christian game. That's the point. You're not taking the skin with you anyway. It doesn't matter. But unless, you know, when I was in the gay community, people might not know this, but, but men who identify as gay and women who identify as lesbian have nothing in common. All right. The whole LGBTQ coalition is just that it's a coalition. It's done to advance um, civil and social rights. And the reason is because and I remember this as clear as anything. And Romans one spells it out. If you cannot receive a blessing from God, you will demand it from men and you will do so like a starving person. You know, a starving person will do anything for food. Hmm. And if you cannot get a blessing from God and you can't, if you are, if you are sinning against him and you refuse his invitation to die, because that's what the invitation is. That's what the gospel invitation is. If you refuse that, then you will demand a blessing from men. And that's, that's where the rights based um, passion tireless passion comes from. But this community came together because of, because of AIDS. People were dying and we came together. What will it take for Christians to look at this world and not be deluded into thinking that everything's going to stay the same and you can just not really care about the souls of your neighbors? What will it take for Christians to actually know that what we need is a revival, not just a nice Christmas or a nice next holiday. So when it, you know, when that happens, I think what's going to happen is, 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 you know, the, the gay community became, became, um, now it's not hospitality in the same sense because it was more like, um, a kind of liberal communitarianism, if that makes sense, but it certainly meant using our homes differently. And who were we? Well, we were workaholics. I worked 80 hours a week. I didn't have time to bake bread. I didn't have time to do this, but we did it because we felt we had to. People were dying and the world hated us and something had to change. And so the first thing that had to change is our community had to gather together nightly And the next thing that had to change is we needed to find some way of being earthly good for these neighbors who hated us. Now that was done without the gospel. Hmm. So in the same way, or in a similar way, I want us to think about what it was like to be the early church. Yeah. You know, the early church was highly given to hospitality. Did they like it? Did they always enjoy it? Did they always want to share the little they had? Probably not, but they did. 
But the big, you know, a big difference between the early church and us is not a kind of hardness of heart or a refusal to practice hospitality. Hospitality is downstream of something else. You know, the early church feared false teaching more than it feared persecution. Hmm. And because of that, the early church was willing to do anything to see their neighbors converted. Our our 21st century evangelical world fears persecution much more than false teaching. And it's constantly happy to take the gospel and slap it on a coexist bumper sticker. It's no wonder we can't practice hospitality. Wow. False teaching and persecution. I've never thought about it that way. That's incredible. Um, Wow. Okay. So Rosaria, I've, a million questions. <laughs> okay. Cool. Okay. So I, I do want to go back to uh, this idea. For five <laughs> I know, right? Uh, I'm glad we're. I'm glad you made the executive order to to derail this. Because <laughs> I was like, I want to keep on going. But I don't know about these questions. So okay. So I do want to get to the whole. You know what you talked about being close enough to get hurt, and I I ultimately want to get there. But you said something that just kind of perked my curiosity that the, that gay men and lesbian women don't like, there's not a lot of commonality there. Right. Can you just talk to us about that? And then I want to get to the, the question about closeness and hospitality and being hurt. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say too, if I can plug a book, it's not my book. It's um, Christopher Yuan's new book. Oh, I've heard um, about that one. Yeah. Yes. Okay. You, cause that, that book is, um, that, that, that'll help answer all of these questions much better than I will right at this point. But, but, you know, think about it. If you are in a community that identifies personhood based on your sexual, your deepest sexual desires, then, um, you know, for the most part, I would say women who identify as lesbian looked at gay men during this time and said, you guys are just a bunch of hedonists. And, and gay men looked at lesbian women during this time and said, you guys are just a bunch of socially active political prigs. Mm. And there's something true about that. You know, if, if indeed, if indeed your anthropology comes from your sexual identity, then on what grounds do you see yourself in difference? Hmm. And, and, you know, given that homosexuality is itself, um, you know, an expression of, of a kind of, uh, I mean, I, I do know that it is a sin, but in addition to being a sin, it is an expression of an aesthetic of symmetry, not asymmetry. So, um, and, you know, and really even during the AIDS crisis, yeah. It, it really was not for, for, for a, a, a sexually active lesbian uh, woman to contract uh, HIV, you, you wouldn't be doing it through your, your, your sexual practice. You, you might've gotten a blood in, you know, infusion or, okay. or something else, but it wasn't going to be through, through that. So may, I'm sorry, this is a, this is a family friendly show and now you're going to have to put something on it that says, if you're no, in the band, is... just remember we have Rosaria on the line. Yeah. <laughs> that Rosaria. <laughs> sorry about that guys. Um, I remember being at a gay pride March and seeing a placard written by one of the churches that said AIDS is God's curse on homosexuality. And my, my partner at the time went and made up a placard that said, if AIDS is God's curse on homosexuality, then lesbians must be God's chosen people. 
Wow. You see, you yeah. got, you, I know you just got to watch it. You know, the wow. gospel, the gospel doesn't make um, a moral, doesn't front load with a moral argument. It, it front loads with what it means to be an image bearer of a holy God. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So Rosario, you're officially my new favorite. <laughs> You can have these conversations in your, in your dining room. You can't have them in your office, but here's the deal. The, the LGBTQ community is clamoring for dignity. Yeah. And only the gospel can give you that because it's the gospel that starts with an anthropology of, of Imago Dei, of being made in the image of God, all human beings are made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. In Christ, we learn to reflect that image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. But that image is there for everyone to see. And you know, when I lived in Syracuse, everybody knew which household had the best snowblower. I mean, you know, it just was obvious. It, you, it was clear as day. If you had eyes to see, you could yeah, see it. That's true. And everybody wanted to be friends with the person with that snowblower, <laughs> that's right? <so> true. <laughs> and you know, what would it mean if your household so evidenced how church membership created a community of believers who gathered daily and welcomed others to join? You know what? That would be an image of of, of great impact because so many of the arguments about, um, loneliness and, you know, gay marriage being the resolution to loneliness and other things. If, if really your neighbors could see the, the church gathering daily as a, as a vital community and welcoming others, maybe even living communally, if they could see that singles were not second-class citizens, and that people who were struggling with same-sex attraction were, were welcomed uh, and struggling in God's way, you know, fight, fighting the sin that is Adam's thumbprint on our lives, but were, were welcomed as, um, as the aunts and the uncles that we, that we need and the brothers and the sisters. And, and, if, and if during holidays, instead of that becoming this strange, boundaried, place where bloodline determined family, if instead of that, it was open and welcoming and people weren't dying of crushing loneliness, that would change a lot. That would change without even saying a word, what the, um, the taste that the word Christian would leave in the mouth of your unsaved neighbors. That's so true. That's so true. So, so Rosaria, when, um, earlier on you, you talked about, you know, this idea of being close enough to get hurt. And we've mm-hmm. talked a lot about this interaction between Christians and non-Christians. And, mm-hmm. and when, when we think about who listens into this podcast and, and mm-hmm. you have pastors and church leaders and you have business mm-hmm. leaders who also lead within the church context, there's mm-hmm. this, I don't, I don't know what we, I don't know if there's been any church leader or uh, that has not been betrayed 
that oh, has yeah. not been shamed, right. that has not been hurt, that has opened up their heart and, ha- you know, and has gotten the rug pulled out from under their feet. And it seems like the older we get, the more this ends up happening. So, so when you think about Christian leaders and the pastors that are listening in, what, how, how can you, what, what word would you have for them to begin opening up their hearts again, to begin trusting it again? Right. Right. Well, first Peter three, um, you know, I think that we, we do when we are being, when we are hurt for the cause of Christ, that that is a very, that is a very good thing. That is a very noble thing. That is, uh, that is something that, that God will use to turn that hurt into the conversion of others. Um, first Peter three sixteen warns us to keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Mm. So, I mean, I think the, the word tells us that we will be betrayed. I mean, yeah. um, you know, many of us are gathering to pray and fast for the situation going on in China right now with Pastor Wang Yi Um if you haven't read it yet, the letter that he wrote to his church just prior to being arrested was, I think it was a manual of, 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 of the, the Christian who expects persecution. Hmm. Um, and I think on this side, it, it's a, it's a travesty and it's a shame if we call losing friends persecution. That's not persecution. That's, that's losing friends. Hmm. You will lose friends for Christ. It, it, it hurts, but, um, you know, let's not, uh, you know, it was Jane Austen who said that her sore throats hurt more than everyone else's. Let, let's not fall into that trap. That's not a good hermeneutic. Let's not go there. Um, but what I would say is get ahead of this. You know, you know, when we are weak, God is strong. When Christians lose, the gospel wins. That's just that's just the the math of God. And so when you see opportunities to serve, do it. And, 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 and the, the more desperate you are praying, you know, the, the, the more, the more likely you are to, to expect, uh, you know, to expect God to show up in powerful ways. Um, and don't presume that just because people are, are angry or hostile or have, you know, have a well, well uh, healed argument about why they don't like you, and why they don't, you know, appreciate what you stand for. Don't presume that that means that they know what they're resisting. Hmm. I mean, at this point, especially the gay rights movement, and, and even 20 years ago when I was a leader in the gay rights movement, our job was to train people to um, have a, a good apologetics, if you will, of shutting down Christians. That's not necessarily the same thing as knowing Jesus, and that's why having um, having people in your home, having people one on one, caring for people one on one. I know that that sounds really time consuming. It is, but God will bless that. And also remember that if you're doing good work, others are going to buy into that. Yeah. And and you can seek their help. I mean, we we had an amazing experience this summer um, of of living with a family displaced by homelessness for about three months. It was our family and another family in church. And it's a long story about how this happened, but, but it was clear that, um, 
it was clear that that something needed to happen. And, and, and two Christian families gathered together and um, with the help of, a, of an organization called Safe Family, which is a Christian response to foster care, there mm-hmm. were children involved in the situation. So we we had some other people who have done scrappy things who could help us. But ended, and the, the bottom line is we ended up with a family displaced by homelessness living with us and another family. And we, we went back and forth and we helped and we all made meals together. And about the third day, you know, because there's, it's very busy when somebody moves into your house, um, especially in a, in a dire crisis. Mm. Uh, we're having family devotions and my husband is sharing the gospel. And, and you know what starts happening? This family displaced by homelessness, they start sharing the gospel back. So this turns out to be a Hebrews 13, one through three situation very quickly, which was amazing and humbling. Um, shortly after that, my husband had to get surgery and somebody in our neighborhood who's um, a little bit sketchy, known mostly as a, as a drug addict, came to me and said, Rosaria, you look like you're in over your head. Um, how about if I stay sober for the next five days and help you? <laughs> I said, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And you know what? We've had the great pleasure of seeing that person come to Christ. You know, don't be afraid to get scrappy. A lot of people can help. There's a lot of things that need, there, there are a lot of things that need to, that, that require the mercy of Christ. Um, don't be afraid to be both earthly and spiritual good to your friends and your neighbors. Um, don't be afraid to appreciate the, the good things that people can do. I mean, I trusted this friend. I know this friend. I, I, I knew he was good for his word on that one. Um, and you know, that's the issue too, that I'll tell you that that's, that was something else that was very important for us to realize my husband and I to realize when, when we were working on this last book and, and it's this, that so many of your neighbors, uh, they may look really cleaned up. I mean, maybe they don't, some of mine don't, but some of mine do, but, but so many people right now are afflicted with abuse and addiction that if you are too boundaried and too programmatic about your hospitality, it's a little too cleaned up. You have a very distinct day and time and place. If that's the only way you can imagine doing hospitality, some of your neighbors who would love to come, who are hungry to not just eat a good meal, but watch what Christians do in their homes. Watch you open the word of God hear the word of God, hear it read, hear it sung, pray, be prayed for. They're hungry for that, even if they don't know they're hungry for that. But you know what? They can't accept your invitation next Tuesday at seven because they just don't know if they're going to be safe or sober. Hmm. But if you have an open invitation, it's every week, every week, same time, same place. One of those Tuesdays at seven, they're going to be safe. One of those Tuesdays at seven, they're going to be sober. And they'll be able to drink from the living water. That's so good. But so, that's the point. And so that is what we do in our house at a certain point, just like in Ken Smith's house, this is not, you know, we didn't, we didn't invent this one. Um, the, the kids bring the dishes up to the sink and they send the Bibles and the Psalters and the coffee mugs down and, and uh, Lee, Kent leads us in family devotions. And we define family broadly around here. We must. 
So we talk, must. talk about a little bit uh, briefly, because that's when I asked the, the question about, you know, is, do we live in a post-hospitable world? Yeah. Thinking about hospitality on my terms and my timeline. Right. Absolutely. And I tell you, I, I'm Italian. So, you know, Italians don't have boundaries. Um, so, so it's probably having me rail against boundaries. It might not make a whole lot of sense, but, but, you know, bear with me here. So many times when Christians talk about their boundaries, I just don't even know what they're talking about. Your boundaries and my boundaries need to be marked by the blood of Christ. So use that to measure your boundaries. Hmm. Um, we started practicing daily hospitality for two reasons. One was just before the Obergefell decision, the, the decision to legalize gay marriage in all 50 states. One of the arguments was that it's not fair to people who identify as gay to not be married because it's not fair for anyone to have to be single because it's not fair to live in perpetual loneliness. Now there's a million problems with those arguments and we can shoot all kinds of holes in them. But one of the things that we started doing is just saying to all of the singles in our neighborhood and our church, come have dinner with us. Just come. Yeah. Um, having a special care for the people in our world who are struggling against same sex attraction. So we started doing that early on. And then a couple of years later, a meth lab sprung up across the street and the person running it was our friend. Hmm. And then we had all kinds of angry neighbors wondering why we're friends with meth addicts. And you know what? Hmm. It put a new edge to the idea that Jesus dines with sinners. Wow. And it made us realize something that if you're going to love the stranger, you're going to be strange. That's all there is to it all the more reason to be practicing daily hospitality and daily means daily. It means every day at about five 30 people start wandering through this door. Um, I've prepared somewhat. I mean, I've, I do, I'm a morning person. So I do a lot of preparation in the morning for, for various things. Uh, meals would be one of them. Um, but you know what? It's, I'm still a homeschool mom and it means that there's laundry, you know, usually piled on my dining room table and, especially when the single women walk through the door, they're the best because they know what to do with laundry piled on a dining room table. You shove it back in the dryer. You know, what else do you do with it? <laughs> it, it parks there until, you know, somebody awesome. else deals with it. Um, awesome. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to have many stakeholders and, and to realize that Christian hospitality doesn't ever have clear boundaries between hosts and guests. The providence of hospitality, I know, is, is one of the things you talk about. Is that is that what we're talking about here, the providence of hospitality? I think so. And I think also just being willing to realize that your clean house is not the main event. Your grandma's, you know, casserole is not the main event. The main event is gathering together with Bibles opened and eyes wide open and, and being able to hold the hand of a neighbor who has just been uh, divorced, betrayed, slandered, to say, that's awful. I'm so sorry that this hurts. And I want you to know that people will betray you and Jesus never will. Hmm. You know, sometimes you don't have to rebuke people for their sin, 
you need to remind them that Jesus doesn't do this to his children. And, and so I, I, I think that what it also does is it sets a time, a designated time and space to really listen to each other. And then finally, it gives your children a front row seat to what it means to watch Jesus save sinners just like us. Hmm. Because when your children see people come to faith, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. When they see that, Jesus will never be this little prop you get to pull out Sunday morning or Wednesday night. They'll, they'll rebuke you for that, and rightly so. Wow. Rosaria, <laughs> man. So JD Greer is, uh, he hosts a podcast on our, on our podcast network. And, uh-huh. um, you're, I, I first heard of your name through his podcast. Like he just kept on talking about this lady named Rosaria Butterfield, Rosaria Butterfield. <laughs> and you know, the name just stuck with me and it's, it's one thing if he quotes you once, but he quoted you on multiple episodes Oh, and, and well. we, we helped produce his podcast. So I was like, who is this Rosaria Butterfield? <laughs> <laughs> and then I came across your book and like, I'm, I'm the, the Rosario Butterfield newbie, but literally oh. by the end of this podcast, I don't know if it's because you, you were a former English professor or it's just that because the Holy spirit is living in your life, but you are now my favorite thinker speaker. Like oh. I was, this was, I was oh. blown away by today's interview. Oh, well, I'll, I'll pray for you then because, <laughs> <laughs> because, no, well, you know, JD's a great friend and he's a neighbor. He's right here in the Raleigh-Durham area. And, um, I'm so thankful to be, to, to be here laboring with people like you and people like JD. And I'm so glad that we do this differently mm. because that's the whole point is to do what you do and open your arms wide. Yeah. Don't try to be somebody else. Don't do it some, the way somebody else does it. God okay. has given you your own particular personality to do it to do it your way. But here's my caution: Let's stop leading with our gifts. Hmm. Let's lead with the work that God's put before us. You know, our gifts are really just filthy rags. That's all they are. They're 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 on loan from God. Um, they're not mine. They're not yours. Um, and, and really, quite frankly, and I think any Christian will say this, our gifts have, have led us astray more than anything else. So if, if you are a public Christian, um, you know, I'll, I'll pray for you. I'm sorry. That's rough. Hmm. But if you're, you know, if you're somebody who, who is a leader, then, then please remember that what it means to be a public Christian is to be someone who repents publicly. Hmm. Because that's the only thing that sets Christians apart. You don't, you know that, right? I mean, anybody can do good works, but it's only a Christian who can repent. It's only a Christian who wants to repent. It's only a Christian whose heart is led by the Holy Spirit to repent. And this is a hard, you know, these are hard moments. This is a hard moment to ask people to die to themselves. Um, And it's hard to remind people that the gospel comes in exchange for the life that you love, not in addition to it. Hmm. But the really good news is the life that Jesus has lived, is living, lives in us, offers to us is far sweeter than anything we could conjure up. Amen. And 
We want to show people that. And we show that we show people that in the hard edges of our life, too. We show people that when they're picking cat hair out of the mac and cheese that we've just served them. Uh, you know, it's true. It's true. Well, people are going to die. Of, prayer, but I'm a, I'm a, they're <laughs> going to die of crushing loneliness a lot sooner than they are that cat hair. I am confident well, of that. That's so good. Well, thank you, Rosaria, for, for being on the podcast with us. We so appreciate it. Um, you can find her at rosariabutterfield.com. We'll have all the, sh- the notes in the show notes and the links in the show notes. So thank you, Rosaria. Hey, thank you, guys. It was really a wonderful afternoon. Thanks. Thanks.